The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. We'll direct you back to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1 today as we continue our series through Paul's first epistle to Timothy, one of his sons in the ministry, in a message that we've entitled Shipwreck. Shipwreck. We'll begin reading in verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, as a way of introduction and in review, we have been studying together through Paul's first epistle to Timothy. As we pointed out several times in this series, this is considered a pastoral epistle. Paul, as a minister, wrote this to one of his apprentices, one of his yoke fellows in the ministry, whom he referred to even as his son in verse 18 of chapter 1, not in a biological sense, but that he is his son in the ministry. He trained him, he instructed him, Timothy journeyed with Paul, and Paul taught him and trained him up in the ministry. He writes to him about issues that are relevant to the ministry, issues that are relevant to pastors. We spent quite some time looking in our series thus far at the crucial importance of demanding the true gospel of Christ. In other words, we should demand biblical orthodoxy. God demands orthodoxy. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you study the Old Testament, never was anyone commended for sincerity and ignorance. Often in our day-to-day we say, well, that person might not know the truth, but they're very sincere. And while it's good in a sense that they're sincere, it's better than being, I suppose, fake, God never commends sincere ignorance. And he never, con- he never commends sincere heresy. He never commends sincere error, but God would have us to pursue truth. And we understand that this is a journey. We understand that we know more as we are 80 than we knew when we were 20. I hope so. I hope it could be said that we know more at 60 than when we were 40. We understand that we are to grow in grace, and the very concept of growth implies that there was a time that you were smaller in your understanding than you are today. But the message here that Paul has shared many times as we've studied together is preserving the truth as it is in Christ. We want to be people who uphold the truth in Christ. Now, last week in our message, we considered Paul's deviation from this as he elaborates on exactly what the gospel is. And I hope you enjoyed the thoughts that we shared with you from 1 Timothy chapter 1 last week. Just to remind you of that, Paul confessed that the gospel message, he proclaims that the gospel message is that Christ came to save sinners of whom he is chief. Paul considered himself to be the chief of sinners, the worst sinner that had ever lived. And this is because earlier in Paul's life, he was a man who persecuted the church. He was injurious. He was a blasphemer. And this message that we preach, this true gospel that the Word of God shares, is that Jesus came to save sinners. 
And so we understand then that the church is a hospital for sinners. It's a place for people with past, people with skeletons in the closet, people who haven't done everything right in their life. Even the ministry, as we looked at last week, Paul was a man who was an apostle. He was a man of even greater authority than any elder today. And yet earlier in his life, in his time before Christ, he was a man who even executed Christians for their faith. And so we know this isn't a place for people who have had it all worked out and all figured out throughout their lives, but this is a place for sinners who understand their depravity, who turn from their sin, who follow Christ, who trust in Him, who have a hope in Him. This is a place for people who are pursuing Christ together. That's what the gospel is all about. As we come to today's message, Paul returns to this theme of the pursuit of the gospel, the defense of the gospel. And we begin our thoughts with verse 18, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. We've already considered this word charge once before in our series together, as Paul told Timothy to charge others that they would teach no other doctrine. In other words, as we titled our first message from this series, demanding the gospel. You charge others that they teach no other doctrine, no other gospel, but we emphatically and tenaciously demand that the true gospel is preached in our pulpits. We desire to believe the truth because we know that it is the truth that sets us free. Jesus is truth personified. I am the way, the truth, and the life. To know the truth is a very important thing. And so Paul, twice in this chapter, would charge. He would charge Timothy that Timothy would charge others. Now, we defined this word recently, but we'll define it again for you today. To charge is to mandate. A charge is a mandate. We, we know what that word means in a political context. Anytime there's an election and it's an overwhelming election, it's often said that that is a mandate for the party or the person that was elected to go into office and do what he was elected to do. It's a mandate. And A mandate is something that's very clear, it's very concise, it's very authoritative. Paul charges him, he gives him a mandate, this word also means a command, and so Paul commands Timothy, and this word mandate and command, this word charge also means direction. And so Timothy's mandate, his command, and his direction, his charge from Paul has been committed unto him according to these prophecies that what? That he might war a good warfare. In other words, getting through all the language and the commas and the statements in between the commas, Paul says, I command you, I commit this sacred charge unto you that you war a good warfare. As we consider the concept of a shipwreck today, We should also consider the opposite of that, which is to war a good warfare. So as we begin to present these thoughts to you, on one hand, you have successfully waging war as a minister of the gospel, a soldier of the cross. On the other hand, you have making shipwreck of your faith. And these two are presented in our message today as opposite extremes. You have making shipwreck, destruction, deviation from course, or you have warring a good warfare. But this charge that is committed unto him is that he would war a good warfare. 
that he would be a successful soldier of the cross. Now, this word commit, this is an important word. We use a very similar word as we discuss the biblical authority that a minister has to go and to preach the gospel, to preach to all creatures, to teach all nations, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. What is the word that I'm thinking of when I speak in those terms? It's the word commission. The ministry has been commissioned, and to commission one is to commit something to them. This word commit means to trust for protection. And so Paul says, Timothy, I trust you to protect this sacred mandate or command, this charge to wage a good warfare. Understand the severity of the terms that Paul uses. I want you to see this as we define this, how important it is for the ministry to do what God has called them to do. This is no light matter. I think one of the greatest disservices we've perhaps done to the pulpit, to the pastorate, to the ministry is consider this a preaching habit. How many of you have ever heard that word? Well, my preaching habit. This isn't a preaching habit. It isn't a hobby. It's a man's life's work. It is to be the most important thing that a man who is called to preach ever does, so much so that he is to be willing to even leave father or mother or family or friends behind, even his career behind, to pursue this calling wherewith God has called him. I think a great example of this is when Peter looked at the other disciples, the other apostles, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and said, I go a-fishing. And oftentimes that's paraphrased as if Peter hadn't yet seen the resurrected Christ, but Peter had seen the resurrected Christ. Peter knew Jesus was resurrected, but Peter had very little direction in his life. He didn't understand what God was about to send him to do. It was a confusing time for the church. Jesus was resurrected. They knew that. They went to the empty tomb. And yet, over and over, he appears to them and upbraids them for their lack of faith. But they're they're in limbo. They're treading water. They're without direction. And I would point out from that that a church without direction is on dangerous ground. A church that isn't moving forward isn't merely treading water but moving backwards. The expression that I have is I I look at the church always in rebuild mode. The church is to always be in rebuild mode. The church can never be complacent with those that they have. Because if you become complacent with those that you have and you say, well, well, everyone here is is young enough, What, what need we with more people here? The next thing you know, those people that have brown hair will soon have white hair. And there will be no one there to replace those who have passed on, no generation to pass the torch to. We must always be in rebuild mode. Peter was on dangerous ground because he was complacent. And so he said, behold, I go a-fishing. And to Peter, that wasn't like it is with us. How many of you men love to fish? I grew up at a catfish pond. And so fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, up until, really up until I met Rachel. I used to hunt and fish. I guess I found what I was trying to catch, and anyway, true story, my deer hunting days were over. My catfishing days were over. I had something more important. But I grew up on a catfish pond, and when I got home from school at the end of the day, I would do what? I would go fishing, and I would dig around for worms and crickets or raid the fridge for anything that I could use for bait, and we'd go out and we would catfish. When Peter says, I go a-fishing, He's not saying, 
I'm going to go recreational fish. What he's saying is I'm going to work. I'm going back to work. And Jesus appears to him on the bank of that water. And he said, Simon Peter, lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. Go feed my lambs. Lovest thou me more than these? Referring to the fish, your career, your job. Yea, Lord, feed my sheep. The third time he asks him, and Peter is offended. And he says, go feed my sheep. What's the point in that? Preachers are to preach. Even if we have to make tents, as Paul made tents, this is to be our life's work. It is not merely a preaching hobby. This is a sacred charge committed unto our trust. We recently had an ordination of deacons here, and the word charge was used in that ordination. We had, at the close of that service, a charge. After we laid hands on them and prayed over them, they were charged to the work that they were called and appointed of our church to do. I want you to understand the importance of this. The word commit means to trust for protection, to set before one. Thayer's lexicon defines it as a thing to be religiously kept and taught to others. A thing to be religiously kept and taught to others. Now, we see this word twice in 1 Timothy 1. Once, wherein Paul charges Timothy and earlier where Paul tells Timothy to charge others. And so you can see the definition of this word playing itself out, a thing to be religiously kept and taught to others. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. This is important work. You're trusted with a sacred privilege and honor to preach the word of God. And so you keep this word pure. You go out and you wage a good warfare. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. Notice this next statement. According to, the word according to means in accord with. In accord with, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. If there's one thing that the minister of the gospel needs... It is regular and routine encouragement. Preachers need encouragement. Because if you had any idea how much we fail versus how much we succeed, it wouldn't even be a question to you. Think about all the people in a man's life that he baptizes. Just give you one example. Think about all the people in a pastor's life and his ministry that he might baptize. And then think of all of those that fall away from the church or fall into sin. We get dumped a lot. You know, we we hear about it in in modern lingo. I was dating this girl, and then she started to ghost me. And and what that means is I I texted, you know, we've gone out, and I sent her a text, and she didn't answer. I called her, she didn't answer. I Snapchatted, and I don't even have Snapchat, but I Snapchatted her, and and she didn't, whatever you do, on, on she didn't reply. Facebook messenged her, and she's not even read it. It's called ghosting. Pastors get ghosted, where, where, where you've, you've baptized somebody, everybody's happy. The next thing you know, they're not there for four or five weeks. You call, they don't answer. You text, they don't answer. You message, they don't answer. And you're like, what did I do? What did I do? What's the problem here? The parable of the sower warns ministers. Jesus gives four types of ground, and he says that the ground represents types of people that receive the word 
and that are fruitful in the word. And three of the four types of ground yields temporary fruit, non-lasting fruit. They, in other words, fall away from bringing forth fruit in the church. And he's warning his preachers that you're going to preach and people that you love are going to fall away from the truth. And that is the most heartbreaking thing that a minister ever experiences. It feels like someone who is... Because, believe me, from a pastoral perspective, we we very much feel married to our congregations. It feels like all of a sudden you come home and your spouse says, I don't really love you anymore, bye. And they just leave. And that's a heartbreaking thing for a spouse to endure. That's what it feels like for a preacher when he's, as it were, dumped by someone. So preachers need encouragement. But as much as we whine and lick our wounds and people quit coming to church, you know, and, and, and I, I baptized this person and, and we loved them and all of a sudden they hadn't answered our phone calls in two or three years and we don't know what the problem is and we can't get a hold of them and all of these other things. Imagine Timothy's life. So I can whine because someone doesn't answer their phone. And, and you can say boo-hoo and play the little fiddle and, and be all sad and complain and whine and grumble. This guy's beaten for his faith. He's arrested for his faith. He's imprisoned over and over for his faith. Timothy is now serving in a city of Ephesus. If you read the book of Acts in chapter 19, in Ephesus, there is a riot because of the ministry of Paul at an earlier trip to Ephesus. These people begin to riot, and Demetrius the silversmith calls out a man named Alexander and yanks him out of the group of disciples and then before Alexander could give his defense, his apologia, his defense of the faith, the crowd around them, the riot around them begins screaming, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And they would have thrown them into a coliseum where they would have been mauled to death by wild animals. And this is in Timothy's pastoral community. This is where he's pastoring. Now, Huntsville is a very hippie town, and it's a very free-thinking town, and there are people in our town that don't like the gospel, just like there are people in every town who don't like the gospel. Never have I had a riot occur in front of me of people screaming, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Never have I been thrown, dragged to the Birmingham Zoo and thrown into the chamber with the lion or the bear to be mauled to death. That's what Timothy had to face in Ephesus. And so what does Timothy need? Well, he needs encouragement. How does Paul encourage Timothy? We find this in both epistles that Paul wrote Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we read those epic words, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be thou therefore strong, Timothy. And so... Over and over again, Paul encourages him as a son in the ministry, as an an apprentice, as one he beloves, as a yoke fellow. But how he does it here is by reminding Timothy of some things that have been said about him before. And this is something that we can use in times of discouragement just to give this a practical application. Think of times of great blessing And it will provide you with the strength and the encouragement to continue pressing along through the dark times because you know that there are more times of blessing coming in the future. Now, these times of blessing that Paul references aren't moments of extreme prosperity of Timothy. 
Paul's not saying, Timothy, just stick it out a little bit. God has great plans for your life. I'm sure he's got a bigger house for you and a bigger bank account for you. That's carnal and that is sinful. The blessings that Paul wants Timothy to think back on are spiritual blessings. Remember, Jesus has given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We haven't been given all temporal, physical blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The carnal, fleshly part of me would enjoy that, have all things through Christ freely. You can get whatever house you want free through Christ, whatever car you want free through Christ. I would have a much newer, faster Corvette if that were the case. You know, the 80s are what the 80s are anyway. But these are spiritual blessings that we're entitled to in Christ. And so Paul reminds Timothy of certain spiritual blessings earlier in Timothy's life. Paul reminds Timothy of what he calls prophecies which went before on him that thou by them, by these prophecies, might war a good warfare. What does this mean according to, in accord with, these prophecies that have gone beforehand. What is is Paul referring to? I'll give you a couple of options. John Gill lists one option. Of course, John Gill, if you are familiar with the writings, the commentary of John Gill, he doesn't just list one option. He lists a half a dozen options any time he gives you his opinion on a verse. And you have to be very skilled in knowing even what opinion he lists that was his. Usually he lists his last. But one of the opinions that Dr. Gill presents, one of the options that he presents, is that these prophecies were the good reports of the brethren at Lystra and Iconium when Paul first met Timothy. Now this takes us all the way back to Acts chapter 16. Then came he, Paul, to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, there was a disciple there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed And his father was a Greek, well reported of, which was well reported of, by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. This is Acts 16.2. Him would Paul have to go forth with him. And so Paul takes him, and this is the beginning of Paul's ministerial journeys with Timothy. Timothy's beginning with Paul. We studied this in a greater depth as we began this series together. It's possible then the, that the prophecies that went beforehand on Timothy were the good reports of the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. But more than likely, and my understanding of this passage, is that this refers to legitimate prophecies that were spoken by others about Timothy at some point earlier in Timothy's life. This would be where men spoke through the Spirit of God, and they foretold some aspect of Timothy's ministry, perhaps his faithfulness, perhaps his devotion to Christ. Perhaps beforehand they said, the Spirit does expressly testify that you, Timotheus, will be faithful in your service to Christ. See, to prophesy is to speak the future before it occurs in the Bible. We have prophecies that have been fulfilled all through human history. There are thousands of prophecies in the Bible. There are over 360 prophecies in the Old Testament of Christ 
The Bible is a book that speaks to future events before they occur, which is used by God to declare the authenticity of the Word of God. One of the proofs of divine authorship of the Word of God is prophecy. And God would do this in a very interesting way. Take the book of Isaiah, for instance. In Isaiah, you have prophecies that are short-term, prophecies that will be fulfilled in the lives of those that are contemporary to Isaiah. But then you also have prophecies of things that would occur 200 years later. Cyrus, king of Persia, was mentioned 180 years before he was born by name in the book of Isaiah. And then in the book of Isaiah, you have prophecies of things that came a little bit further along, such as John the Baptist, very vividly prophesying of his life as a voice that cries in the wilderness. You have prophecies of Christ. You have prophecies of the work of Christ, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. And then finally, Isaiah ends with a picture of a new heaven and a new earth where we will be with Christ forevermore when this world, this universe is destroyed. So if you take Isaiah as your model, God prophesies through holy men as they spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and he gives short-term and more and more distant prophecies. And as all of those come to pass, you can take heart that the things yet spoken about that haven't come to pass, that they will also come to pass. We noted this as we studied in 2014 through the book of Daniel. That was the most enjoyable series I have ever undertaken in my own personal studies because my faith in the Word of God, not that it was lacking before, But it was completely reinforced and bolstered, fortified through the study of the book of Daniel. You have world history written in advance. Empires that were foretold of in advance. That series, that study lives on our website if you'd like to go re-listen to it or listen to it for the first time. Prophecies are when people speak through the Spirit of God and they foretell future events before they occur. In Deuteronomy 18, God gives us a rule to know if the man or the woman even who speaks is speaking through the Spirit of God. If a man speaks, if he takes it upon himself to speak in the name of the Lord and God has not commanded him, that which he has spoken shall not come to pass and you should not be afraid of that person, of the things that he says. However, when God raises up a prophet, God speaks through that prophet and the things that that prophet says come to pass. And that's the litmus test, is what that person says, reality. Does it come to pass? Along those lines concerning that, I would also point out that the prophecies that God gives in His Word are specific. In just a moment, we'll look at how these prophecies were localized to the first century church in the ministry of the apostles. There are people who purport to prophesy today, and the prophecies are generic. They equate to nothing more than horoscope. You can remove, whether you're a Libra or a Virgo or a Leo or any other bracket that they put you in, in in the horoscope, in the paper, you can remove whatever heading that falls under. Let's say it could be written to a, a Leo and you can be a Libra and you can read that if you don't know it's a Libra and you think, man, that applies to me. Why does it apply to you? Because it's generic. It applies to everyone. I've read studies in years past of college professors who did just that, where they reversed everything around and distributed it among the classroom, and everyone there thought it applied to them, and it was simply generic. It applies to everyone because it's that generic. 
Something's going to happen in the world and it's bad in the next 60 days. Oh, gee. What, are you not from around here? I mean, that occurs all the time. So when God speaks, he, he does it by saying, there will be a man who is king of the Medo-Persians, and he's going to rescue you from Babylon, but you're not even in Babylonian captivity yet, and his name will be Cyrus. Now, that's specific. That's specific. Or through Daniel, there will be 70 weeks of years, 490 years between the decree to rebuild the holy city and the coming of the Messiah into the world. Well, that's specific. And that's why when Jesus came, they knew that it was the time of the Messiah. So we need to be very clear in our understanding of prophecy and whether prophets are alive and ministering today. At some point in Timothy's life, more than likely this has reference to when prophecies went out on him, that is to say, people prophesied of the work that Timothy would do as a gospel minister. Now, what specifically did they say? We don't know. We can guess, and more than likely it had to do with his faithfulness, his devotion, perhaps his suffering. And Paul says, remember the things that these people said about you in advance and use this to strengthen you. Use this for encouragement to get through the discouraging times, the difficulties that you will undoubtedly experience as a gospel minister. Now concerning prophecies in the church age, because we spoke about it from Isaiah or Daniel's perspective, let me give you some clarification as well. Remember that when Paul writes to Timothy, it is Paul the what? The apostle. Paul the apostle. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, comma, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is an apostle. Prophesying belonged to a package of what we call sign gifts that were localized around the ministries of the apostles in the first century. Why did God give these apostles the ability to perform miracles and signs? He did that as a stamp of authenticity on their message, on the preaching, on the church. How do you know that if you're a first century Jew in Jerusalem, how do you know that the words of these men are indeed true, that Christ was the Messiah, is the Messiah, that he's ascended up into glory and seated at the right hand of God because these men would go into a town and they would begin raising the dead and healing the sick and casting out devils. And it was a stamp of authenticity on their work. What's a proof text of this? Mark chapter 16. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Obviously, creature there doesn't have reference to animals but people. In other words, preach indiscriminately to everyone. He goes on, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You can interpret that in one of two ways, either as an assurance of salvation. Those that follow Christ have the assurance of salvation. We know this to be true. This is a fact. Those that believe and have professed Christ, taken up their cross to follow him through baptism, God does say to them, you are my child. Now, doing that didn't cause them to be his child. Being born again is how they're his child. And only those that are born again will have a desire to follow him as disciples. There's a lot of theology that we could talk about behind this verse. But we know that through obedience, 
comes assurance. He that believeth not shall be damned. He that believeth not, those that reject Christ, those that hate Christ, have this negative assurance, if you will, given to them, this negative declarative positioning that they're people who will be condemned. Why? Because the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. And so if a man is a rejecter of Christ, it speaks very ill of him. Another way to understand this verse is that in believing and in being baptized, we will be saved from this untoward generation. And that is also true. In fact, the Apostle Peter, not long after Jesus said this to him, Jesus is speaking to Peter, would go and preach publicly in Jerusalem in Acts 2 and say that if you repent and you are baptized and you become a disciple, then you will save yourselves from this what? From this untoward generation. And so I'm fine with either way that you want to run that. Both are true principles. But notice verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they shall drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. What do we read of there? Apostolic sign gifts. People prophesied over Timothy because Timothy lived in that apostolic era of the church age. Now, we are in the church age today, but there was an apostolic era of the church age, wherein the apostles were ministering and the ability to heal the sick and raise the dead was there among them. Joel speaks about this. He prophesies of this in Joel 2.28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my flesh, my spirit rather, upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. When did this come to pass? Is this a future day? No, the Apostle Peter says in the book of Acts chapter 2, when the apostles spoke with languages they had never learned, and people looked at them and said, these men are full of new wine, Peter stood up and he said, these are not drunken as ye suppose, Acts 2.15, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. In the book of Acts chapter 21, just to show you how diverse this was among all the congregation, this is not talking about preachers. The prophetic outpouring of the Holy Spirit In the book of Acts chapter 21, there was a man referred to as Philip the Evangelist, and he had four daughters which did prophesy. So there's even this man who had four daughters that prophesied, Acts 21 and verse 9. That doesn't mean they were preachers. That meant that God had poured out His Spirit on them in such a way that they foretold events before they occurred. And again, that was localized to the apostolic age. When the apostles passed off the scene, so did these gifts. When they died, these gifts ended with them. Why? Because the canon was finished, the church was solidified, and it wasn't needed anymore. 
these gifts attract then, as it is today, carnal men seeking to make merchandise of God's children. Simon Magus, in the book of Acts chapter 8, attempted to buy this power. And Peter tells him, you're, you're in the bond of iniquity, the gall of bitterness. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. One reason that this doesn't exist today the way that it did then is because people would be taking advantage of it and making a show of it. It wasn't intended to be permanent. It was intended to solidify the church. Moving on. These are legitimate prophecies spoken by others about the ministry of Timothy. What is Timothy to use this encouragement to do? To what end? That thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Now, transitioning into the warfare of the gospel ministry, we as ministers and to some degree everyone in the church is to be a soldier of the cross. We are soldiers in active warfare, spiritual warfare, against this world. The gospel ministry engages in warfare. You would refer to this as a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. Israel often engaged in physical warfare. They were a physical nation. And while it was a different type of warfare, we can look at the history of Israel and use it as a pattern for our spiritual walk. We are a spiritual Israel. We have the circumcision by the Spirit on the heart rather than the circumcision of the flesh. Our sword, rather than being a sword of metal, is a sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And so our battle is spiritual. It is a spiritual warfare. In this spiritual warfare, this spiritual battle, we war not against flesh and blood, as it were, but principalities and powers against spiritual darkness, against the rulers of darkness in this world, against evil. That coming from that language coming from the book of Ephesians, as Paul speaks of the armor of God. We're to be armed. There's armor that you can wear. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, loins gird with truth, feet shod for the preparation of the gospel. Praying always, taking the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We're all engaged in this warfare together. The language there in Ephesians is to having done all to stand. There might be times that we're not gaining ground. There may be times that the best we can do is dig our heels in and crouch down and hold that shield and simply face the onslaught of fiery darts from the wicked one. And we are to do all that we can do to stand. It's often pointed out that God doesn't calls us, or call us rather, God doesn't call us to be successful. God calls on us to be faithful. Success is from the Lord in this spiritual warfare. And there are times that He makes us to triumph even though we're losing the battle in a physical sense. We triumph with Christ. It was through persecution in Acts 8, as we read last week the story of Saul of Tarsus, that the church scattered that looked like a defeat when they run and hide and go underground, and yet it was in that defeat that the church spread throughout the entire region like a wildfire. Because everywhere they went, they went preaching the gospel. And the gospel spread through God's divine providence 
And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. We're called on to be faithful. God calls us to be successful. Success is not our desire. Faithfulness is. But we have this promise that in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And so dig your heels in and be faithful. We battle against sin in ourselves and in our teaching against it in the world in general. We fight against heresy, false doctrine that divides and splits God's people up. We do battle against false teachers, those that creep in unaware, wolves in sheep's clothing that lead God's children into sin. And more my word, false doctrine leads to sin. False doctrine leads to sin. We think, well, doctrine is theoretical. It's in a vacuum. It doesn't affect the way that I live. But false doctrine leads to sin. There was a false teacher named Jezebel, either nicknamed that, referred to that as a pejorative, or maybe that was even her name in the church at Thyatira. Thyatira, And this woman calls the children of God to do what? To commit fornication. False teaching leads to sin. What then does true teaching do? It enables us to mortify our flesh. It enables us to purify our lives. We want to mortify the flesh. We want to live lives that are close to Christ. How do we learn that? We learn it through learning the truth. So we fight against false teachers. And we have a warfare against the world in general. You're not of the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. As we speak about this battle, understand that this is why love is such an important attribute in the heart of a gospel minister. Without love, we become callous. Without love, we become harsh. Without love, it becomes about being a mercenary. We don't want to be mercenaries, but this is a labor of love. Without love, Paul said, without charity in 1 Corinthians 13, he's what? He's a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, I'm a noisemaker. Without love for God, without love for the brethren, without love for the truth, I'm making noise. I'm just a noisemaker. I'm a performer. I'm someone who just stands up and puts on a show. But this is, this is to be done by love. Number one, love for God. We want to defend His cause because we love Him. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all the heart, with all your soul but also our love for others. If I love my neighbor as myself, then I would want to save my neighbor from the same things that I don't want to be destroyed by. And so because I love him, I'm going to tell him, I love you, but what you're doing is wrong. There are times he may hate you for it. There are times that he may be cut to the heart and gnash on you with his teeth. That language we know is familiar as we read it last week, but it actually comes from the Psalms. We read Psalm 37 this week in our home, divided it into four parts as it contains 40 verses, and we're reading about the way the wicked gnashes on the righteous with their teeth. We want to rescue them, even if they don't want to be rescued from their destructive ways. The broad way leads to destruction, and it's broad. There are many that are on it. We want to deliver them from destruction. Say, so, Brother Ben, why are you so adamant about the things that you preach to us? Because I don't want you to be destroyed. I don't want your life to be ruined. I see you on that path and I want to tug you back because where you're going leads to a place you don't want to be. And this is our spiritual warfare. 
holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Now, first of all, when we say holding faith, the word hold means to embrace. Sometimes hold means to suppress, but we take this to mean embracing. We want you, Timothy, to embrace the, the faith. The word faith in the Bible has basically three definitions. First of all, the most common definition is belief or trust. So do you have faith? Are you a person of faith? And when we speak about it in its most basic level, faith is that intimate heart knowledge and trust of God that is sparked by Christ at the new birth. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so this knowledge of God, they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, the Lord, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. It's a teaching that God himself does. This faith we trust is that, this knowledge of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Definition number two, faith is defined as fidelity or faithfulness. This is a legitimate definition. However, definition number three, the latter of these three definitions, is the one that we apply here. Faith is defined as a body of truths to be believed. A body of truths to be believed. Contextually, what are we talking about? Defending and embracing the faith, the truth. Jude wrote in his epistle that we should earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. When Peter says that there are people who have departed from the faith, put away the faith, and made shipwreck, he's talking about people who have departed from the truth of God's Word. They were once in it, and yet they departed from the truth. And so he's charging Timothy to war a good warfare, embracing faith that is the body of truth to be believed. Timothy, embrace the truth. I charge you to Embrace the truth. Now, then we begin speaking of shipwreck. And this is an interesting metaphor that Paul uses to describe departing from the faith. Some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Now, as we define faith as body of truth to be believed, we say if faith is a doctrinal issue here, teachings, faith synonymous with the gospel, faith, the faith synonymous with this truth that's been delivered unto us, the word of God, the true doctrine of Christ. If faith is doctrine, then shipwreck occurs in the context of soundness. Why is this important? Christ authors and finishes faith in his children. This means the spark of faith, you listen very carefully to me, is never extinguished in the soul of a born-again person. They always know Christ. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus whom thou hast sent. John 17, 1 through 3. A person's doctrinal soundness might be overturned. But that person always knows God in their heart. God never vacates a person's heart. He yet lives in them. He that began a good work in them will perform it under the day of the Lord. He will perform it. Not themselves, not their cognitive understanding, but He will perform it. If you're born again, you stay born again. This doesn't speak against the doctrine of preservation. 
The context of this is making shipwreck in the truth to be believed. In other words, falling into heresy, heterodoxy, false teachings. I'm thankful to know that false teachings don't take one from Christ. How do you know that? Because of one of these men in 2 Timothy, Paul says that their heresies, their errors eat as a canker, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying the resurrection has passed already and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. What's the context? Doctrinal error. Doctrinal error, praise God, doesn't take people from Christ. But it does rob all of their joy here in this life. And it can destroy them in this life. You've seen it, and I've seen it. These people have made shipwreck of their faith. They've made shipwreck in the context of sound doctrine. Rather than embracing the faith once delivered, they have erred. Now, this is an interesting metaphor. Shipwreck. What happens in a shipwreck? It's usually caused by some unexpected obstacle. No ship sets sail with the intent of destroying itself. Something gets in the way. It strikes something. Error, heresy, sin. The ship sets sail and it strikes an iceberg or a rock. Maybe it's invaded by pirates. Maybe it's attacked by a landmine. Maybe it's attacked by a bomber. Think of some of the more notable shipwrecks in human history. Probably the most notable is Titanic. What did it strike? It struck an iceberg and lost so much of the crew and most of the containers, most of the cargo. In a shipwreck, a storm, a rock, an iceberg causes the ship to be damaged. When the ship is damaged, the course is interrupted. See, it's not heading in the same direction. Get this metaphor in your mind. It isn't headed in the same direction, and because of that, there's loss, there's destruction, there's damage. People and cargo are even lost. There's one notable shipwreck in Scripture. Paul alludes to being shipwrecked multiple times, but the most notable of these is when he was in a ship, a, a prison ship, in a storm called the Eurocladon. And eventually, after being tossed to and fro and Paul telling him, no one survives if you jump ship. You only survive if you remain. The ship strikes shore, it's blasted to pieces, and they float to shore on driftwood. And not one of them died because God protected them providentially. When I was a little boy, my dad liked to listen to an American folk artist, Gordon Lightfoot, and he had a very popular song, the about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was in one of the Great Lakes. Get that idea of a ship being destroyed in your mind. That's what happens to our discipleship when we depart from the truth. It's a very scary thing, and we can make shipwreck of our soundness. Now, in closing, he gives us examples of this. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander? Paul names names. That isn't politically correct in our day and age 
to name names. People don't appreciate it when preachers name names. This is why it goes back to love. If I love the flock, if I name names, then it's not the same as if I'm just a preacher shark who likes to go around picking on others to build myself up. And there is a difference. There, there are men who have ruined their ministries through the practice of naming names because they become so obsessed with the error that they can no longer function in the positive. And what we do is to be so positive as we preach and we affirm the gospel. But Paul mentions names. Now, he wasn't a preacher shark. There were times that he had disagreements with other men that he didn't name names. There were many times that he did. And it wasn't personal. It was simply the protection of the church. With real threats, he named names and he enacted church discipline. Delivering unto Satan is an act of church discipline. These two that he names here, Hymenaeus, you read his name just a moment ago in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He taught that the resurrection was past already. You might consider this an extreme preterism. Preterism is a danger saying that everything in the Bible is fulfilled, whether it is or not. Please understand, Jesus didn't come again in AD 70. Another subject for another day. There are things that are yet fulfilled. We have to keep in mind that we are looking for a day when Jesus comes again. This other man is Alexander. This could be one and the same with Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4 who did Paul much evil. And Paul says, the Lord reward him according to his works. There's a man named Alexander that is in Ephesus. If you read Acts chapter 19, he was drawn out. He was a Christian who was dragged out of the crowd by Demetrius the silversmith. Perhaps this is the same Alexander. Perhaps it isn't. It's a very popular name among the Jews named after Alexander the Great. Dad joke warning, this Alexander was not so great. But Paul has delivered these men unto Satan. What does that mean? Well, it has reference to church discipline. As an addendum to this, go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this week. Churches, Paul delivers people over to their vices for the destruction of the flesh as an act of church discipline. Now, this ought to terrify us. People today, they underestimate and even mock at Satan and his power. I, I see these ads online, and you know, if you have pastor in your bio, you get advertisements online that relate to pastoring, and there's this ridiculously absurd shirt that said something to the effect of pastor because you know Satan stomping Bible ninja is too long of a title, and I thought, you, you are a buffoon. You, I am not a Satan-stomping Bible ninja. I can't stomp Satan. You think about it. Strongest man alive, Samson, defeated by Satan. Wisest man alive, Solomon, defeated by Satan. Man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, defeated by Satan. And I think I can go up against that wicked one? No. This is terrifying. They're delivered to their vices. Now, in closing... We often view church discipline from the standpoint of excluding or excommunicating from the assembly because of a danger. But we often neglect the idea of what they're excluded to. 
When a person is disciplined, they are delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, we read that the Spirit might be delivered in the day of God. Understand, this doesn't take them from Christ. We don't have that power in the church. But when we discipline someone, we turn them over to their devices and their influences, and Satan will destroy them. Church discipline is not without consequence. Many times destruction follows. And they're delivered unto Satan. Why? Because I'm fed up with them and I want them to get what's coming to them? No, that they might learn. That they might learn not to blaspheme. Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 5 to deliver one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And in 2 Corinthians, what does he say? Sufficient unto such a one is this punishment to receive him back into your congregation, to take away the church discipline because he's repentant. Paul delivers these two men to Satan that they might learn not to speak evil of the gospel. They might repent. They might be sound once again in the faith.